pardon pardon me there's a an ambulance going by right. there's 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 nothing wrong with your your pi, your iPod um <laughs> yeah, do not adjust your set across whatever you listen to podcasts on this is the silent film music podcast with ben modell it's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for perform and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films i'm ben modell i'm a silent film accompanist historian presenter multi-hyphenate etc etc welcoming you to our podcast this is episode number 60 recording at some point in october 2023 thanks for listening thanks for wafting in i am joined as always by my friend uh, co-host and co-producer kerr lockhart how are you kerr hi ben it's nice to have you back from uh a whole lot of travels and playing. I know you've been cocooning recently, but before that, it seemed like there was a lot going on if you were following you on the social medias. Yeah, I, I, I try. It looks like I'm really, really busy because I only post about work. But it's been a rather busy uh, couple of months, as, as it often is when, when the, the autumn kicks into, into gear. Yes, um, we're um, in the, the, the uh, season of uh, crisp air, colorful leaves, Nosferatu and the Phantom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> although all... I'm, I'm I'm hearing that uh, the and, and seeing that the the foliage change is a little delayed in a lot of parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm about to tomorrow. I'm flying up to Maine to do uh, a couple of programs at Bowdoin. And uh, uh, Trisha Welsh, who's the film professor there, has told me you may be a little disappointed that the colors haven't quite popped just yet. <laughs> but at least I'll be in Maine. Always a good thing. August was interesting because uh, the Museum of Modern Art, at the beginning of, of August, ran a Week of Silent Film series that Dave Kerr put together. And it was primarily silent films that had been newly or recently restored but had not played in New York City. What was remarkable about the series was the turnouts. Mm. Uh, we were all just surprised that uh, they were pretty full houses for just about everything, and and just about everything that was programmed was not super famous mm-hmm. films. I got to accompany a film called Padlocked, which I had seen at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival a couple of weeks prior with uh, Stephen Horn at the piano and other things in his lap, um, and it went on the ride with that audience. What was interesting for me about playing for Padlock and having watched it with an, uh, an audience was that it, at the screening I played at MoMA, the audience reaction was a little different. It seemed like they sensed some more, a little bit more lightness in, in, in the story, even though it, it is uh, a little on the... Uh, it's a drama, and there's some 
some elements of uh, family disharmony that are part of the plot line. I mean, mm-hmm. it's something I, I did notice overall in San Francisco is that the, the audience reactions for some of the films that even the ones who that weren't light comedies, I mean, maybe just how it sounded to me in the space. They, they, they were being taken a little bit more seriously, whereas there's one moment toward the beginning of Padlock, but where there is a light humor moment where a character, uh, a, a woman who is serving... Uh, working for uh, Noah Beery Sr.'s character has a reaction and it got a li- I heard a light chuckle mm-hmm. and this is one of those things where you change gears a little bit be- based on an audience reaction and I didn't lean into the comic elements of the film but I realized oh this film could also be a little bit light and th- this particular audience caught on to some of the humor of the hypocrisy of this particular character mm-hmm. and when she the character turns again about halfway through the picture it continues to resonate that is a that's a an Alan Dwan film yes and there's some yeah. interesting names in the cast Lois Moran Louise Dresser yeah. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. I think it's one of Richard Doug's earliest Arlen. roles, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, uh, yeah. Uh, you and, know, I guess, uh, you know, uh, uh, a studio programmer, uh, you know, a bread and butter movie, but, uh, qu- you know, quality people involved. Rex Beach is one of the writers. Yeah, it's, and it's a very good film. And, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, the more we all get to see films, whether they've been restored or not, that are not the Silent Years Film School joe franklin book classics uh, mm-hmm. or not uh especially if they're not we realize that there's a lot of really good film that was mm-hmm. made in the in the in the teens and the 20s it's just that it doesn't always get a chance to see the light of day and it's wonderful when that does happen even if it's a handful of festival screenings at least the it, it can it's being shown to an audience and you know you realize that Alan Dwan made pictures that weren't the big Fairbanks pictures he was doing or some of the other ones, but whether it's Dwan or, or, or Clarence Brown or Clarence Badger could be handed a, f- a basic five, six reel feature. And it's still very well made and insightful. And the, the cinematography is very good. And I kept thinking, why do I know this actor? And I realized it was Noah Beery Sr. who mm-hmm. I thought, oh, right. He plays Sergeant Gonzalez in The Mark of Zorro. That's why he looks so familiar. He just has a different, very different persona. Usually I'll have one experience watching the film alone in my apartment and then play for it and find something different. This is a thing where I thought, well, I don't need a screener, but thank you. I'm going to see this in San Francisco. And I I got to quote unquote screen the film in real time and not running at a double or triple speed just to get through it and going on the ride with the audience while listening to Stephen Horn's excellent score, and then having an, a, an experience with the picture in a show setting with an audience that was actually a little different. Mm-hmm. And and that's and it had nothing to do with me thinking, well, I'm not going to do what I heard Stephen play or whatever. It's just that the vibe in the room was a little different. And so that became uh, part of the inspiration for how I treated the film. Again, I didn't play it like it was a comedy, but I realized, oh, the, the audience is responding to this aspect of the film. So that 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 was good, and, and pretty much any uh, everything I played for, and and uh, uh, Maki Matsumura and Donald Sosin played for shows, and I kept hearing from them and from the projectionists and from Dave Kerr that the turnouts for all the shows were pretty almost pretty much full full houses every time and so perhaps it'll happen again 
And then later, at the end of the month, there was a series that Ron Magliosi put together of silent films and early sound films that are early color processes. Ah. And he, and I got to play for some of those shows, and we found the same thing happening. Full houses, most of the time, even for pot boilers like, like uh, Phantom of the Opera, and for things like uh, The Loves of Casanova, which is one of the films I played for, a French film with Ivan Mujukin. Uh, that had a lot, a lot of um, with, with color tinting and some hand colored sequences. Yeah, we we were getting really good crowds for for August. It surprised everybody, mm-hmm. and and that's usually a time when you would not expect an audience to come. And sure, it, it, that became part of the fun of this show is that there were you know 180, 200, 250 people in the room at any given screening, ready to go on the ride and enjoy the films together. So look, going back to the loves of Casanova, yeah, the thing that jumped out at me when I took a, a quick look at to get some information about it is that it's conventionally known to clock in at least a little bit over two hours. Yes, and, uh, that uh, you know, I'm thinking about uh, uh, sitting down in a day uh, in August at a piano bench, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when um, a famous uh, soloist. Uh, is going to play recital at Carnegie Hall, he gets a break every 10, 15 minutes. Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. It's just like the, uh, it just struck me, the, the physical endurance element of, of uh, I mean, I, I mean, obviously a, a pianist back in the day would have had a long day. They had multiple oh. shows. They had, you know, yeah. at least two shows, some, some towns three, but this would sort of have added, uh, added to the, uh, the burden is just a, a a long picture. Well, it's I mean, two hours is not un- that unusual for for what I do. Although I think that in the silent era, a two hour picture would would have been something that would be more of an anomaly. And even though those titles are are the things that get screened at retrospectives and festivals today, the theater owners were much much happier with the six real Gibson <laughs> Western because they could get in six shows a day. And, and you know, here comes this Mary Pickford picture that clocks in on eleven reels. Like, oh great! Now I can only sell tickets and fill my house three or maybe four times, mm-hmm. depending on the speed. So two hours is not so bad. But the day before I was supposed to play, I got an email uh, that the film actually run uh, ran two hours and forty minutes. And so uh, that's now, that's what that was. There, was there, just, was there a, 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 an undercranking anomaly or is no, no, something no, no. peculiar about? No, you know, this, sometimes, sometimes that is the case where mm-hmm. uh, where where one 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 speed has been found on the IMDb and the actual running time of something is different. But that happens less frequently these days because so often what's being shown is digital. Mm-hmm. In this case, there were two editions. And two restorations of the film, and so for reasons I don't I don't know, one timing was grabbed, but the edition that was being shown had a different running time. Mm-hmm. What you do is pace yourself. <laughs> no, I'm just part curious. Now, now, so MoMA is exhibiting on film. Yes. Yeah. Well, this was a no. This was a digital presentation. Oh, this was a digital. Because I yeah. was just wondering whether any of these the festival or museum presenters ever, uh, you know, ride the rheostat. Sometimes that's the case. Every once in a while, I'll get a call from either a booth or uh, there's a couple of archives where somebody is like, well, "We're shipping this out. What speed should this be run at?" They wonder. They want to know. There's that, and I did have that happen once when I was playing for a screening of Miss Mend, which is a 
Russian film that is a serial in the style of American serials. Pardon, pardon me. There's a an ambulance going by. Right. There's 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 nothing wrong with your your pie, your iPod. Um, <laughs> yeah, do not adjust your set. That was being shown on film. Uh, this is at the Museum of Modern Art. We were in this the uh, small at the second theater, and there was supposed to be another big major premiere event in the bigger theater uh, later on in, in in that afternoon or evening. But there was some issue with the DCP, and they needed to move that show, the big premiere thing, in to where Miss Mend was happening. Well. That meant that Miss Mend had to end earlier, and because it was in, it's a long film, and we did it in two chunks. First of all, the speed it was being run at was, a, I thought, a little on the slow side anyway. So I come in uh, to the booth during the break. I hear about, oh gosh, we have to move this other show in here. I looked at the number of physical reels that were mm-hmm. left, each each being a two thousand foot reel encompassing two reels of film. And I looked at them, counted them up, did some math in my head. I said, okay, if we run this at this speed. We'll be able to finish in time to get me uh, and everybody out. I think I had the organ going for this. <laughs> and they clear the room and bring your other thing in. So that, and I thought, just like they did, <laughs> yeah, you know, a yeah. hundred years ago, sure. it was about, it was about, do we want to go home early or do we, can we squeeze in another show? I, I've had that happen every once in a while. And uh, I know Stuart Oderman, who lived in New Jersey, just across the bridge and, he had to catch a bus home, so depending on what the film was and if it was something that was a little long, and he <laughs> checked the bus schedule, and they might run something at 24 frames per second that might uh, have been aided by running it slower, but Stuart had a bus to catch. <laughs> but with The Loves of Casanova, I figured, uh, I know I'm in for a long haul. I'm fine with the running time, and I knew that at least it wasn't like the time I played for Napoleon all at one sitting. It's, oh there's goodness. a lot of there's a lot of battles. I mean, the, even the first third of it, there's the snowball fight and there's the pillow fight, and he's not even grown up yet. Uh, I knew to pace myself. I I didn't know a lot about the film going in, so there are there were places where I would pull back and hold back and play a little less, which I try to do anyway, and it it doesn't bear out in the recording so much. Uh, but I knew I had to, to pace myself a, a little bit. And, and it turned out to be a fun film. It's kind of a road movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are elements of Doug Fairbanks in it. And uh, Mujukin has a little wit and charm about him that he doesn't all, all, always get to display, much like Valentino gets to do in The Eagle, mm-hmm. uh, which is practically a Fairbanks picture. Uh, I'll be playing for a show of The Eagle in 35 millimeter and November at the Cinema Arts Center if anybody's a oh. Valentino fan oh, and wants to yeah there's two hours and 40 minutes of the recording so I just kind of randomly opened the file and found a three minute section uh, where it's quiet in some places and more energetic in others and just it's close mic'd I've got my Zoom H2N uh, in the same place I have it when I we do the watch party it's just behind the music rack pointing into the piano and so here, live in performance at the Museum of Modern Art uh, at the end of August of this year, 2023, here's a few minutes of my live score improvised for The Loves of Casanova, starring Ivan Ujukin.
recorded live in performance on Blanchette Rockefeller's old Steinway. <laughs> Yours truly uh, accompanying, for a few minutes anyway, The Loves of Casanova, a French silent film. What struck me about that excerpt, and it just might be uh, the random chance of the two-plus minutes you pulled out, it felt very, now without having seen the film, it felt very pastoral and not continental. You know, when you say Loves of Casanova and Ivan Mujikin and it's a French movie and the, the music sounded like uh, maybe I was watching a Griffith film. Sometimes uh, some, some piece of a score uh, will work with a film and that listening to it on its own, it will sound like it's for a completely different Something kind else. of scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I used to do these shows at the Museum of the Moving Image where they would bring in a school group to tour the galleries and they could screen a film. The choices were an episode of I Love Lucy, a documentary, which I can't remember what it was, or see Chaplin's The Immigrant. And they still do that, and they just don't do it with live accompaniment all that often anymore. But one of the things that they used to do, the educators would say, have me play a little piece of music, and they ask the kids, what did that sound like? Mm-hmm. And I discovered early on that when I would play something that in my head was was supposed to be one kind of mood, the students would identify it as something else. Uh-huh. And I realized, oh, I need to go a little more stereotypical when I mm-hmm. do these demonstrations. So for a love theme, I'd get a little bit more schmaltzy, <laughs> or for a horror film, a little bit more heavy-handed. So they could go, oh, it's a horror movie. Oh, it's scary. But it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's, uh, it's one of these things where... The, the musical style doesn't necessarily have to sound like what it, what the film looks like mm-hmm. to be effective, and sometimes it's more effective that way. Whether it's that or playing completely against type in an ironic way, like playing a Pinkies Out intermezzo in a Chaplin film where they're sitting down and eating because it's supposed to be a satire of table manners and dis- indigestion, or just doing something without being obvious about it, but instead of doing the obvious thing, oh, this scene looks like this, so I will play this kind of music. There may be something else that isn't, uh, doesn't quite uh, uh, mirror the, the mood or the look of what's on screen uh, to, to help the dramatic import of a scene go over. Mm-hmm. Speaking of slapstick, you had one of those more typical assignments back in the summer at uh, Shroon Lake. Shroon Lake, okay. up in the Adirondacks, and that was one of a number of shows of Safety Last that I've played this year, uh, as have many people played. Uh, it, this year is the centennial of the film's release, and now that everything is celebrating its 100th anniversary every year, uh, a good deal of effort was made to make a lot of screenings of the film happen. I, I do something every year up at Scroon Lake since the I guess the late 2010s, and it's this wonderful historic theater that was built in the 19 and opened in the 1920s, uh, and then got a sort of an Art Deco makeover in the late 30s. And it's not a huge movie palace, but it is a vintage old theater, and it currently runs on a seasonal basis. Uh, Larry and Liz McNamara run the place. It was uh, saved during the go digital or go dark time by, a, by among other things, a, a, a grant from the New York State Council on the Arts as well as a, a huge fundraising crowdfunding effort. And they're, they're open from uh, May 30, I guess uh, Memorial Day through Labor Day, and then they'll, they'll have an event at Halloween time, and then they also do something at Christmas time. But they show first-run films, and, and during the summer on Monday nights, they often will have a 
classic film series. Sometimes the films are just shown or they'll have a guest speaker like Jeremy Arnold comes every year and and I also will come up and I'll play for uh, a silent film. This was one of, I guess, two or three or four screenings in a in, within a two or three month period that I had done of, of Safety Last. I'd played uh, for the film at Epsilon Arts up in Brattleboro as well uh, earlier in, the, in the, I think the late spring. I recorded uh, my score uh, at the theater because I wanted to get a good recording of the sound of the audience that mm-hmm. you hear. And it's this thing I, I talk about uh, to a lot of people that, that the, the way the film is constructed is it's just so tight and so driven to the audience reaction that that gag with the mouse going up his pants leg at the end, which is just such a Three Stooges <laughs> hackneyed, oh gosh, this, the, the audience just, uh, I've heard people scream with laughter. You don't hear that reaction here, but you you get to hear the laugh and the structure of the audience laughs from that sequence. You can almost, if you know the film well enough, if you line it up with a YouTube clip, you you can see how it fits this laugh and this and then this and then this and then you can and the topper and you can almost hear the way Lloyd and his editors and uh, his staff uh, who would preview the heck out of these films timed it exactly exactly right. And so you'll get is, to hear yeah. And he really is the master of piling it on. Yeah, and and just you know the chapter on on Lloyd in the Silent Clowns, the architect of sympathy is a great a way of putting it that that. Uh, that's a, for a different aspect of the Lloyd pictures, but they're really, I, I always say this, that they're constructed like a roller coaster ride. They're mm-hmm. very specifically built, and this reaction that you'll hear, it happens at every show in varying degrees. The piano at Scroon Lake is, is from the turn of the last century. Upright piano. It gets tuned, and somebody comes in and plays it every once in a while to keep it in shape. The way I recorded this is rather than putting my rec- my digital recorder near the piano, I put it on the other side of the auditorium, facing the piano and the audience, so it would pick up the audience sound as well. But the acoustics, as you'll hear, are, are quite good. So this is a few minutes from Safety Last with Harold Lloyd, somewhere toward the end, and you'll hear the heroic theme that I will create during a show for The Climb, which alternates with agitados and tension and release music and then comedy music. So while we're having these moments where he's making his way from one floor to the next, the hero theme will come. So it's sort of a break from the tension and release, uh, oh my God, he's going to fall and kill himself, tension in the room to, oh gosh, he's going to make it. And then the next thing happens. Uh, so you'll hear that. It's the sequence where he gets to the ledge, the mouse appears, goes up his pants leg, then he has the reaction, then he hops up and down, and of course the topper, and you'll hear the laugh that is the topper, uh, is when he shakes the mouse out of his leg and it lands on a, a man's head and pulls his toupee off. The live-in performance at the historic Strand Theater in Scroon Lake, New York. Here's a few minutes from Harold Lloyd's Safety Last.
Recorded live in performance at the Strand Theater in Scroon Lake, New York. Yours truly accompanying Safety Last, starring Harold Lloyd, on a Hallett Davis and Company upright. It's it's a nice old piano. It's, it fits great in the room. It's beautiful to look at. And at some point I will put up a page on my blog about the theater with all sorts of photographs. I've done this with one or two theaters that I play at. For Epsilon Spires up in Brattleboro, I've started doing this because at one point over the last few years, I would get booked to play a venue I hadn't played before with an organ in it, some sort of pipe organ in it. And I thought, well, let me find something out about this instrument and the space. And all I could find is a stop list mm-hmm. that some organ website had put up in 2013. You could tell by the website. No one's touched the website in a long time. Or, as was the case at the uh, Oscar Larson Performing Arts Center in Brookings, South Dakota, the university has a website. There's a page for the Arts Center the perform in this one particular hall. It mentions the organ. And I found out it wasn't like, oh, no, no one's allowed to talk about the instrument. It just it hadn't been done by the university. So... It was perfectly fine for me to. So I, I've, I think I've put up a page with the stop list, of course, but lots of pictures of the instrument, uh, so that if anybody else <laughs> wants to learn about a particular instrument at a particular theater, they can see what it looks like inside and not just read a stop list. So uh, once my cloning machine gets fixed, you know, which will take my time machine getting fixed, so I can go back to Radio Shack and get all the parts I need. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put all that stuff up. But it's a it's a sweet little theater. Uh, Larry and Liz uh, do a great job there. Larry's Larry's a great guy, great guy to work with. We had a great time. We have a great time doing these shows every year, and we we build up an audience for a silent film up up, up in the Adirondacks, and it's so, just it's great fun uh, to 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 get to to play up there every year. Think about vacationing on Scroon Lake next August. Yeah, and catch a movie while you're there. Oh, yeah, definitely. So we move from maybe the most common sound of silent film that is an upright piano in your neighborhood house to maybe, I don't know the statistics, of the most second most common sound, which is an actual theater organ, an organ designed for theater. That uh, The film's second fiddle you accompanied at Capitol Fest. This was at the 20th annual Capital Fest up in Rome, New York. I always have a good time telling people I'm going to Rome in the <laughs> middle of August. And I tell them I'm going to Rome, New York. And then then people wonder what that means. Um, it's one of those one of those cities and towns around the, around the country that's named after a really famous par- uh, city that everybody knows, like Paris, Texas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but... If you've not been to Capital Fest, uh, it's held at a 1928 movie house. It's a great cine convention run by Art Pierce. The other exciting thing is that the theater pipe organ that you hear at the Capitol Theater is the one that was installed there in 1928. It's a Moeller theater pipe organ. On top of that, over the last few years, David Peckham, who is not only a very good, not only theater organist, but film accompanist, uh, who is also, like a lot of or, or theater organists, an organ repair, refurbisher, and technician, has been working on getting the instrument into better and better shape. And every year I go, it sounds better and better. More parts of it are uh, more completely online. 
uh, and, and like that. And so the instrument really sounded great this year. Uh, Second Fiddle is a film which I had not seen. There's no screener of it. It's one of these situations where there's a print, I believe, which came from the UCLA Film and Television Archive. The reason the film was being shown is that Mary Astor has a part in it. She doesn't have a lot to do. It's one of those movies Mary Astor is in before she becomes Mary Astor, quote-unquote. And so what I did to prepare is I went on the Lantern search engine that works with the Media History Digital Library, or Mahuddle, and found as many reviews as I possibly could about the film to get a sense of what the plot was, what the storyline was. And so I had a general idea of what the storyline was going to be. But really was playing cold, and and this is a situation that's unusual because of the position of the organ console. So this is like is often the case in a vintage movie house. The organ console is dead center. And so I'm looking up mm-hmm. at this big screen. And sometimes you're a little too close to really see mm-hmm. uh, everything. Uh, so uh, the looking around for clues and, and stuff like that involves turning your head back and forth and sometimes you'll miss things. But that's what it was like for tons of people during the silent era. I remember being told once uh, by somebody who told me the story I hear every once in a while. Grandma gathered us around the piano when we were kids uh, and would play a movie. And this woman told me that when grandma or her great aunt started to play her head would snap back about 30 degrees <laughs> and she would play. And as soon as she stopped playing, her head went back down to the normal position. <laughs> Just having, that's the way she played. That was her muscle memory. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the challenge, but this was a, uh, it, it was a, the film was decently made. Um, I had a little fun. You won't hear it in this clip, but there's a moment where Glenn Hunter is the lead in the film and in the, in the trades, it made it sound like, oh, he was this big star and he's a new up-and-coming uh, young juvenile lead and boy, oh boy. And um, a year or so later, you nobody ever... I have never heard of any other movies with Glenn Hunter in it. Um, he's fine. He's kind of a he's Charles Ray wannabe, uh, both in terms of who he is on screen and the character he plays. But there's a moment where he has this fantasy about being a tango champion of some sort. And... You know, so I look around. Oh, here, here's the castanets and the and the tambourine. I turn those on. I don't usually use them, but it was a little. The scene was a little elbows out anyway. So I thought, well, it's it's okay. There's a lot of uh, moments of uh, peril in the film. I won't even get into the into the the plot line because it's a film you don't know unless you were at Capital Fest. You have no idea what I'm talking about. But it was a treat as always to play a real actual theater pipe organ. Like I said, uh, it's sounding better this year than it did the year before and the year before that. I was able to record this by putting my my Zoom H2N digital recorder in the front center of the balcony. And I was a good boy. I took black gaffer's tape and made a couple of tape loops and stuck it on the bottom so that nobody would inadvertently knock it over and hit somebody in the head in in, in the orchestra uh, seats. Uh, But it's right. The position is perfect because the chambers are on the same level. Um, like if you if you ever do go to anything at the at the Capitol Theater, uh, where they're showing a silent, sit in the balcony because you'll hear the organ much better. So uh, you'll get a, sen- a sense of what the instrument sounds like. And I thought that my my playing went well. 
which is something I rarely say. And I got a few nice compliments uh, after the show and by email or or at at, at Ca- Capital Fest about how how it went. But you'll get a chance to hear uh, what this instrument uh, sounds like. So here's a few minutes of my live improvised score to a film I'd never seen before: Second Fiddle, starring Glenn Hunter and Mary Astor performed at the Capitol Theater in Rome, New York. in performance on a molar theater pipe organ at the Capitol Theater in Rome, New York at the 20th Annual Capitol Festival. Yours truly improvising a musical score for the film Second Fiddle. I wanted I to wanted uh, f- tip my hat. Go. There was a nice uh, use of sequence uh-huh. a few times to put on our, our musician hat. Oh, thank you. But, uh, as, as always, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm sure it happens. Sequence, a lot of times, that, yeah. The sequence is when you have a, a snatch of melody or theme or motif, yeah. and you simply start it on different degrees of the scale. Thinking of something else. Oh, 
I had no idea I did that, but that often is the case. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I always love it when, when people who know more about music than I do explain something I've done to me, and I <laughs> had no idea. Uh, I want to thank Art Pierce for uh, inviting me to come and play for the film. They don't always have four organists, but this year was a big year, so they had me come up. And it was great for me uh, to get to not only play, but to interact with people who have been watching the watch party or who were backers of, of the Raymond Griffith project and to sell copies of that in the Tom Mix Blu-ray uh, at their excellent dealer's room. So it was, it was a, a good time had by all, and I was glad to be up there again. It's not really a precisely accurate uh, reaction, but when I hear a silent film accompanied on a piano, and a good piano as our, our Scroon Lake piano, um, but I feel like I'm um, sitting on a wooden folding chair and when I hear a theater organ, I'm, I'm in a nice, comfortable, padded theater seat. I, mm -hmm. Yeah, I call it the, the movie, I, you know, I tell people it's the movie palace sound. Mm -hmm. You're getting that. Mm -hmm. And and I, I agree. And it, there's also a much more emotional or emotionally rich experience that the audience has. I've done shows at MoMA where I've played the same film twice, once on piano and once on organ. And the audience reaction at the end, in terms of applause, uh, is much richer uh, with the with the organ. You know that's part of the magic of silent film because you're imagining so much about the film, and that sound of the Wurlitzer, even if it's digitally sampled, it I think in some place in your subconscious, because it sounds like a movie palace, you forget you're in a dark gray <laughs> room with black curtains and gray carpeting. And that's not just MoMA. Most movie theaters look like that mm -hmm. uh, these days. And so you feel like you're in a movie palace. And that's part of why I like to bring that sound digitally to places. And, and especially, you know, any any kind of a, a festival or screening held in a movie palace that's from the era. Because the light reflects out onto the proscenium and sometimes out onto the walls, out of the corner of your mind, you're reminded, I'm in the space where this was shown 80, 90 years ago, mm -hmm. that you don't get uh, any anywhere else. And it's it's a real treat. And, and the art and, and everybody on staff there puts on a, 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 a great festival. And if you haven't been to Capital Fest, uh, mark your calendars for next year. Well, we have a couple more excerpts to talk about, but let's take uh, a little walk to the side and talk about some of your extracurricular activities, at least. One of them is the big effort to expand the Halloween repertoire. Yes, that would be Roland West's The Bat from 1926. And that's a film I accompanied a year ago at the Cinema Arts Center. Having remembered it, I looked it up and I played for it in the mid-90s at MoMA. I mean, it shows you what an impact that it had on me. Not like it's, you know, a film that rivals Sunrise and Metropolis combined or anything. But last year when Nosferatu had its centennial and everybody and their grandmother, dead or undead, was, was showing Nosferatu, Dylan Skolnick and I, Dylan, who's the co-director of the Cinema Arts Center, we both were like, ah, oh, God, not, not Nosferatu again. And I thought, well, let's, what else could we run? I remembered the bat. It's the same kind of film as The Cat and the Canary, but it's everything that that film is not, in that there is a monster in the movie, a real, this this bat person or persona. The name of the film is The Bat, which is way scarier than The Cat and the Canary, <laughs> which sounds like a Tweety Bird cartoon. The sets are by William Cameron Menzies. You know, the more research I did about the film, the more I was 
astonished that this film had not been shown more. And its remake by Roland West in 1930 were the inspiration in part for Batman, for Bruce Wayne's having a bat identity, uh, the inspiration for the bat signal, according to Bob Kane, anyway. And so I had worked out something with the UCLA Film and Television Archive, working with Todd Weiner and Steve Hill, to have a co-branding arrangement like the one I have with Library of Congress. Um, and that was, again, thanks to Rob Stone, who's piloted and shepherded all the things I've done with Library of Congress over the years. But he had formerly worked at UCLA and told them, you know, yes, this works out real good for us. And, you know, you'll get your logo at the on the case and all this stuff. So I've worked out something with them. The Kickstarter hit its funding goal in about in about three or four days. And the only reason it didn't hit, hit its funding goal in four or five hours like usual is that I set the bar much higher. Instead of my usual MO, which is to set a funding goal, which is for no digital restoration and making that a stretch goal, I thought, well, let's just go for the whole thing right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Considering that everything I've done the last few years has raised enough money for me to hire Thad Kamarowski to do digital rest uh, restoration and hire somebody else, usually uh, Chris Krause or, or, or Graham Brown to do the grading, et cetera, et cetera. So it took a few days and then just kept going and going. And so it's completely funded. Um, no stretch goals. And I've done the opposite of stretch goals. In And by that, I, I mean that instead of setting a stretch goal and hoping we raise enough money to do fill in the blank, I've just let the overfunding happen so that we have a, a slush fund, if you will, should Crystal or I come up with a really cool, fun idea? Oh, wouldn't it be great to do this this way? Or now we have money, let's say, instead of whoever it is, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, whether in the past it's been Steve Massa or or in this case, uh, Scott McQueen is going to do the, the narration for the video essay. Oh, well, maybe we now have money to send them to an actual recording studio instead of having them record it in their bedroom and hope the trucks don't go by <laughs> in the, while they're recording or, or anything. We have no idea what it's going to be. But the idea was to add another film to the playlist. Uh, and this is a this really is like a Halloween film. It's a creepy old mansion and uh, there's a, a mysterious criminal who calls himself the Bat. He's wearing a Bat costume for some reason, uh, leaving people mysterious notes Bodies disappear, jewelry disappears, there's shadows. It's a perfect Halloween film, unlike so many of the other films that get shown in late October that are just gothic and, or creepy. This film was preserved and restored photochemically in the late 80s and early 90s and has never had a, an official DVD release. 681 people pledged to the Kickstarter who are just as responsible for the films getting out as me and Fat Kamarowski and Crystal Kai and Chris Krause and, and everybody else involved with the project. Uh, we can do all the work uh, and it can be wonderful, but if there isn't the all-important money <laughs> to pay for it, it's not going to happen. And it's this, uh, it doesn't happen often, but it's this harmonic convergence of fans and archives and uh, independent artists working together to get a film that deserves to be seen out there. So the bat will be available on home video and ideally DCP uh, in time for Halloween of 2024. Uh, and as it turns out, I had no idea that Batman Day, National Batman Day is September 21st, yeah. which happened a day or so after I launched the Kickstarter. I had no idea. But maybe we can aim for that for a release date. We'll see.
Okay, you've wandered off the reservation uh, on yeah. a couple of other things, which is uh, one yeah. is that Ernie in Kovacs land is out. You can buy it. You can hold it in your hand. You can give it to people for Christmas. Finally, yeah. after all this, it's here, and you've uh, you've done a little work supporting it. Yeah, I've done a little work. Josh has done a lot of heavy lifting in terms of making uh, event, book signing events happening around the U.S., and he's even got a couple things lined up overseas. But the book is out. People love it. The final result uh, is is really quite impressive, and it's I, I'm just really pleased with the re- reaction it's gotten from people, and and so. Look for Ernie and Kovacs Land wherever you get books, wherever that is these days. And it's it's like a deep dive into Ernie's mind. And so I encourage you to put it on, on your list. If you're a Kovacs fan, and if you've already got all of our DVD sets that we did for Shout Factory, this is a perfect uh, companion. The silent film universe continues to percolate and chug along. I've completed uh, yet another draft, another pass at the manuscript. And Marlene Weissman has come up with a cover design that is just beyond spectacular, as usual. And I look forward to foisting this on the uh, on the public uh, <laughs> next year. You'll hear from me when it's ready. It'll be published through Undercrank. The, the nice thing about it is that if any gig I have can become a book signing event, I don't have to set up book signing events <laughs> to, to popularize the book. It'll be out next year. I, I think it's in good enough shape that uh, it's going to go to a copy editor for some tidying up, and then the next steps will happen. The silent film universe uh, coming to a bookshelf or maybe an e-reader near you <laughs> in the co- in, in the coming year. A few more music excerpts. The mark. Oh, we have more. The mark of Zorro at the, oh, the William yeah. Center. Okay. Ah. Well, this is a very unusual sounding instrument in this excerpt. Well, it it is. It is uh, uh, this is an unusual situation, and I don't usually play a Roland Juno synthesizer, uh, and that wasn't anybody's idea for the show in the first place. But there was an issue with a projector at the Williams Center, and the Williams Center is housed in a mid-twenties former movie house, movie palace, which has, as an annex, downstairs a few smaller screens from its, its time as a multiplex. The gentleman who is running the cinema quickly figured, if, well, we have to save this show. It isn't, it isn't like, okay, well, we can't show it. He went, okay, wait a second. We can uh, take the file of the film and show it in one of the smaller rooms. And they scrounged around and they found uh, a keyboard and an amp and it turned out to be a Roland Juno, J-U-N-O, and it's a 1970s synthesizer. And somebody who knew the keyboard a little bit uh, was able to set up a, a patch. It sounded keyboardish enough. And the fun thing for me was actually that, I've mentioned this before, that Lee Irwin did a number of film score recordings on a rig he had in his apartment that was made up of three or four synthesizers and samplers functioning, stacked, functioning like a, a, a organ manuals, and he had a organ pedal board wired to an old Moog. I was kind of hearing that sound in my head, and I thought, well, this isn't so far-fetched. I've listened to some of these scores that way because of what little I know from about uh, synthesizers from a course I took in college. I knew about how to create and adjust the envelope. Envelope uh, in, in, in synth technology 
is you have a couple of kinds of sound waves. A sine wave, a sawtooth wave, and maybe there's one or two others that I'm blanking on. Within that one sound, you can control the attack, decay, sustain, and release of each note. I mean, of all the notes, but you can have a sharp attack or a softer one or a, a lengthy release or a, a short one, pizzicato kind. So I was able to shape the sounds a little bit during the show, sliding the sliders up and down for a more gentle sound for the love scenes and then a sharper attack for some of the fights and that sort of thing. And this was one of those let's make lemonade. I want to make sure everyone understands this is not a knock against the theater. If anything, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's it's to Michael Olivo's credit that he was this resourceful and thought, okay, and this is the, it's the kind of thing I would do. Okay, we can't do it this way, but what if we did it this and we got this and we moved this over here and we can still have the show? And it it came off all right. We didn't have a huge crowd, but we relocated. I I said, okay, I'm game for whatever the hell it is. And uh, so you'll hear a few minutes of uh, my score for The Mark of Zorro as performed on a Roland Juno synthesizer at the Williams Center in Rutherford, New Jersey. live in performance at the Williams Center on a Roland Juno keyboard. Uh, yours truly accompanying Douglas Fairbanks in The Mark of Zorro. What I thought was appropriate about the sound you sort of concocted 
It's a, it's a little brittle and harpsichordy, but I like because it had a, a sharp front end. Good yeah. for sword fighting. And it's kind of a nice bridge, oral bridge, going moving from pianos at the first part of our show. Um, and the next thing we're going to hear is essentially is a church organ, which has almost no front end, no attack. You know, notes just sort of materialize they ha- from they nowhere. They just happen, yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there, there are merits to this. And so we move on to a performance of our show's theme song, and maybe it's the, the Ben Modell traveling theme song. I don't know how it's, <laughs> how it's evolving, but I'd love, you to talk, love to talk about whatever you want to say about the composition, because I find it very charming. Well, thank you very much. Um, this theme, which I, I think we'll, we'll settle it as the, the theme for the podcast, uh, is something I had had in my head for years and never really sat down to figure it out. And as, as simple as it, it is a, a melody, I just never bothered to sit down and figure out how it goes and would figure during a show, oh, I would try to play it and it wouldn't happen. And that is because of my quote-unquote chops, uh, if there are chops at all, where if I'm playing something and I need to hear another f- piece of music in my head, I can't hear them both at the same time. So even if somebody, if I'm playing a scene and somebody starts singing Pop Goes the Weasel on screen, I won't be able to find it because I'm hearing what I'm playing at the same time. I Most accompanists, they have degrees and doctorates in music and performance and they can pull that off. I just can't. So I can, I'd never actually hashed it out. During the pandemic, when I was doing live streams for art house cinemas around the U- U.S., I wanted to have a theme, an opening theme to play people in. You know, we would start the stream. Uh, we would start with the, the art house's logo on the screen. We dissolve to the wall, mana pans over, just like the watch party. But I didn't want to play the silent comedy watch party theme, especially since a lot of the time... The films I was presenting were not elbows out comedy shorts. I made myself sit down and hash out what this this tune was. This little waltz that I that I, I could had in the back. I, it's one of these things where I could hear it mm-hmm. pacing around the booth, walking from uh, the subway to MoMA, and then during the show I couldn't find it. <laughs> so I made myself figure it out. So I used that as the intro and outro theme for a number of live streams. And now that that is pretty much died out, there's it's not like, oh, I can't I need to come up with a different theme for the podcast. I thought, let me just borrow that uh, since it is a really nice. I'm very pleased with it. And, and I know you like it, Kerr. So what I've started doing, because I just haven't made or found the time to sit down and do an official proper recording of it. When I'm getting myself acclimated at a theater, especially with uh, a, a theater organ, I'll set up my recorder And I'll try my best to play through the theme. Now, again, I'm not a conservatory musician, so it will take me 15 minutes to get one take that's good and maybe two that can splice together. It's remarkable, my inability to play my own music. Uh, But I will get, I'll try to get one, and my, my thought anyway is that until I can sit down and record this properly, every time I play somewhere else, I'll try to, uh, I'll try to bang it out so you'll hear it on a different instrument. So that's what we'll, we'll hear now is uh, up at Epsilon Spires, 
which is a, uh, a not-for-profit arts presenting organization and presenter run by Jamie Moore. It's housed in the former First Baptist Church of Brattleboro, but it's got an original installation SD pipe organ in it. Um, but I think that this instrument is rather similar to the one that Fats Waller uh, laid down those tracks on in Camden, New Jersey. And Brattleboro's a, a, it's a nice town. I love going up there, and I can't thank Jamie Moore enough for bringing me up. I was the first person she brought up to accompany a silent film up there, and they're they're doing silent films on a semi-regular basis with other other accompanists. What was uh, the show uh, this Jeffrey. year? This year, I played for Safety Last in the spring, and I was just up there to play for The Man Who Laughs. Yeah. And that went over like oh, gangbusters. That. I couldn't believe how... Uh, much the audience dove in and they were they were on the ride I could tell and the response at the end was just uh, phenomenal mm. people just had a fantastic time and so yeah Brattleboro is a, a cool cool town to go to there's a historic movie theater there also the the, the Latches uh, so if you're in, if you're ever up in the area just go visit Brattleboro uh, and I look forward to going back playing for more silent films at, at Epsilon Spire's in, in, in the coming months and, and years. This has been the Silent Film Music Podcast, episode 60. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, presenter, educator, and home video label, and other things. I'm joined as always by my friend, co-producer and co-host Kurt Lockhart. And I'm going to want to ask you to do two things if you haven't done them before. Go to silentfilmmusic.com and sign up for the regular emails so you'll stay up to date with all these uh, comings and goings and everything that's happening. And also do go to the podcast platform that you download from and write us a, a, a review and give us a rating so that people who are like-minded will have an easier time finding this podcast. That's right. Thanks so much, Kerr. Thanks, Kerr, for all you, you do, keeping the show happening, keeping the episodes moving uh, uh, ahead. Thanks for listening. Uh, this has been Episode 60. We'll be back ideally in a month with another episode. Until next time, I'll see you at the silence. Now, enjoy our new theme. We're calling it the Silent Film Music Podcast theme until I come up with a proper title. It's recorded at Epsilon Spires on their SD pipe organ. Mm-hmm.